0: I begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people, traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. Hi everyone and welcome back for the fourth episode of our Ashes podcast series Investigations Unpacked. I'm Rani John, a partner in Ashes Dispute Resolution Group and co-lead of our corporate crime practice. For those of you joining us for the first time today, this is a podcast series focusing on the topic of corporate investigations. Our earlier episodes have looked at key issues to consider in conducting an internal investigation, how to navigate difficult privilege issues once you've got an internal investigation underway. And we've also spoken with Kate Morgan, a senior barrister with extensive experience in white collar crime proceedings about how to manage an internal investigation which might unearth potentially criminal conduct. Today, we'll be talking about the particular challenges that come with conducting investigations across multiple jurisdictions. And we're very lucky to have a guest who is very well placed to talk to us about some of those challenges. Alexander Dimitrenko is a partner in our Tokyo office. He's got over 15 years experience in white collar defence, internal investigations, sanctions and exports control work. He's also worked across several jurisdictions, including on investigations covering over a dozen countries. He's qualified to practice in England and Wales, New York and Russia, and he's a registered foreign lawyer in Japan and he also happens to speak five languages. Welcome, Alexander. We're very happy to have you on the podcast today.
1: It's a pleasure to be here, Arani. Thank you so much.
0: Alexander, we know that where misconduct by a company or its employees may expose it to regulatory investigations or enforcement action in more than one jurisdiction, there's a whole raft of issues that can arise. And it can be a real challenge to ensure that what you do in a regulatory investigation in one jurisdiction doesn't disadvantage the company in a current or future investigation or enforcement action in another jurisdiction. What do you see as some of the key considerations for companies when dealing with that kind of scenario?
1: Thank you, Rani. Well, indeed, having a a multi-jurisdictional investigation is always a difficulty in itself, and it's a headache for the client, um, and it's a challenge for lawyers. One of my recent examples, which I wanted to to share with you, involved UK, Vietnam, Singapore, BVI, and Australia. Thankfully for the client, uh, the regulatory component was only ultimately limited to a couple of jurisdictions, so it wasn't too, too bad. but it still requires a lot of work. And the, as, you, as you have a variety of countries, you have a variety of legal regimes, and it does create challenges. So to answer your question, uh, I guess what I wanted to focus is three key areas for focus in, when you have a multi-jurisdictional investigation. And they are privilege first, second, data privacy protection, and third, and quite important, determining the relevant regulators. So allow me to start with first, privilege, and I appreciate I'm coming on the heels of your prior privilege discussion, but this is a bit of a different topic here. We have um, the multi-jurisdictional component here. And as you know, and as listeners know, the privilege isn't the same everywhere. The privilege itself is a common law concept, so would be very familiar to those of us who are practicing in um, common law jurisdictions like Australia, like US, Canada, UK, etc. The privilege is not the same and doesn't even exist in countries where you you have civil law jurisdiction and you know there are many more of them, so if, if your instigation has You know, a combination of those common law and and civil law countries, then the privilege has to be assessed very carefully. And the reason for this is because you will inevitably have documents that, that may need to stay privileged, such as legal advice, particularly around the investigation itself or anything prior to investigation and what what we're seeing in most recent times is, you know, the, 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 key, the key advice I would say would be, for the first one is, look, if you have those multi-jurisdictional concerns, let's make sure that we keep the privileged documents in the privileged jurisdictions. That means that if you have a document in Australia, you don't want to be transferring it to another country for review purposes, etc. And this brings me to a topic where when we do investigations, we deal with a lot of electronic data. Yeah. So what we've seen as well is the electronic data may be stored in one place, maybe accessed in a third place, and then maybe reviewed during investigation in a third jurisdiction. So you may have three jurisdictions uh, access points or processing points for certain data. And those jurisdictions may or may not provide the privilege protections. Again, very importantly at the very outset, to determine whether you have privilege protection, you have those documents and keep it as safe as possible. The the second point, rani and, and I think this is very relevant to the first point, is data protection and data transfer of documents. And I think this is quite important because once you think about moving documents around, the, the issue of data privacy comes into play. Because many, well, practically all of the major jurisdictions now have data privacy and data protection laws again, they will not be matched. So for instance, Korea has a very strong data protection laws. It will require the gu- the, the owner of the data to give you full consent. And frankly, it's, it's an important point as to how do we access even data uh, in the first place when we're dealing with data privacy issues. So for, for most jurisdictions and most investigations as, as we represent the client, we would rely on internal rules and regulations that require you know the custodian of the data uh, an employee to surrender the data but what happens if data is stored on a personal device for instance if person was using the, the chat application to talk to a client to talk to a customer or, or or lobbyist, yeah can we access that it's a big question. It does require consent from the individual to say yes and obviously written consent. we they're agreeing to providing such data. they agreeing to give you their personal device. they're agreeing to give you the password to access the certain applications, maybe certain chats then and then it comes the burden on us and as investigators to ensure we're not accessing anything that's actually protected as. us you know personal or private. That is when we come to a point where we need to make sure our our search terms are structured in a way that is very tailored and we've been very careful how we do this.
0: And Alexander, you mentioned a third point which is identifying relevant regulators.
1: This is very, very important because you may, as in my case, you may have five jurisdictions where you had some concerns or some relevant uh, or you know operational issues, but actually the regulatory exposure may not be everywhere. But what if it is, you know, what if it is relevant for multiple jurisdictions, and I think something we we may cover a bit later in in more detail, but to me, you know, at the very outset, it's very important to determine, if possible, the, the, the landscape the the legal landscape as to where we are, who are the regulators we we may be potentially dealing with, and and whether they're going to be aligned, whether we're going to be aligned vis-à-vis with, with them, so a lot there is a lot going on there, because again regulators may have very different approach, the rules may be very different, and we as you know representing the client we need to kind of map it all out in a, in a way that's going to be you know fair to the investigation process that regulators expect to be fair and independent, but also you know irrelevant and responsive to regulators' expectations and concerns. So I'll stop here. Uh, I know we probably have a few follow-up questions, I'm sure.
0: Just picking up on your point about regulators, I think sometimes you tend to assume that regulators, of course, communicate effectively with each other. And of course, that must be going on in, in the background. And, and certainly my experience has been that that's not always a valid Assumption in multi jurisdictional investigations. So, uh, for example, and this happened in one of the investigations I was involved in, where you had one regulator that demanded that the mere fact of its Regulatory investigation was kept confidential, but if you were to do that, then you would be breaching your obligations to a a different regulator in a different jurisdiction. And, you know, sort of once we sort of explained that scenario, we got it sorted out. But that's just one example of conflicting positions in different jurisdictions and a a situation where, you know, regulators were perhaps not as aligned as you might have expected. Moving on to um, the topic of privilege, which which you touched on, and it's been something of a recurring theme in this series. So clearly the scope of privilege and when it can be claimed and Uh, The documents over which can be claimed can differ quite substantially across jurisdictions, as as you've pointed out. But you can imagine a scenario where, for example, you've got documents that might be protected by privilege or would be ordinarily protected by privilege in one jurisdiction, but they're being required to be produced in a different jurisdiction, which either doesn't recognise privilege as a concept, as you've touched on, or has a more limited conception of privilege than jurisdiction number one and what is then the implication of producing that document in jurisdiction number two where it's not protected does that then affect your privilege claim in jurisdiction number one and you know that's obviously a very challenging situation for the privilege holder have you seen circumstances like that arise in in the work that you've done
1: well, you're correct, uh, Rani. I think it it is a very different uh, proposition and the, the mismatch of privileged regimes uh, may be utilized by the regulators. And actually, I think in the past when the regulators were less aligned, I would say, you know, you, you would have seen a bit more. In recent years, you see a little bit more of alignment between regulators and appreciation that, um, you know, the, the rules have to be followed. And, you know, the protections have to be extended beyond the borders of a certain country. But to, to pick up on your point, really, you know, the privilege itself is, is critical, especially for the work we do as as, as counsel, because we will be providing updates, reports, um, you know, uh, all sorts of analysis to the client that that may lead to clients decisions as well as advice, ultimately to uh, self report or not self report, interim analysis, which may or may not be correct, at the end of the day, you know, all of that, uh, is that that's the whole reason of privilege, Yeah, we want to be able to have um, fully proper and Honest conversation with the client. What happens is, particularly in the particular investigative context, is not only that the rules are lower, the world map in terms of the actual privilege protections, but 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 even U.S. that has the you know I would say you know as a U.S. lawyer we, we kind of rely on privilege quite extensively because we do have quite extensive privilege protections. But U.K. for instance has moved away from that uh, really broad coverage of investigation. Privilege, and uh, and and there may be mismatch. You know, there, there, were, there were cases litigated in in the UK where, you know, the UK regulators were demanding some documents to be privileged and and were provided and were utilized in the, um, you know, enforcement proceedings. To to your to your point, you know, again, if we have a mismatch and how the regulators react, I think, you know, again, there is appreciation much more from particularly us regulator that i've seen in the past that acknowledging okay when stand there are no you know protection privilege protection in a jurisdiction and i've seen to be honest with you cases where in 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 some particularly tricky cases, they have utilized, like for instance, with Japan, they have asked the regulators to maybe if they conduct a, you know, don't rate and they, and you know, and they, they get some documents from legal department to potentially share them or share summaries of them. I think we we we're kind of not in the ballgame anymore. I think there is more appreciation from regulators that, that this has to be, you know, respected. But uh, what, what I wanted to mention to clients now is when we deal with the Documents internally, and we share them, you know, within certain groups. What we really, what you, what you're really asking, Rani, is, you know, by by p- p- producing documents in one jurisdiction because we're legally obliged to do so, or, or those don't rate where document was taken away. Are we waiving the privilege in another jurisdiction? The answer will, as most things in law, it depends. I think, I think we will, you know, in the UK, maybe different from the US. Again, I think the US will take a, more, you know, more helpful approach to the client. But it won't be helpful, Rani, if what I've seen happened in the past was where some of the documentation relating to the investigation process or some of the interim results were shared by the client internally with larger groups. So the the email was sent, say, for lessons learned or background purposes, and the email went to the people who weren't really part of the investigation. So they weren't the client per se. And as you know, the, the, the client is a key determinative of who, to whom privilege belongs. So you, if, that's one thing where I have seen a bit of a trouble where you say, look guys, you've waived the privilege not because you've given document to the actual regulator, but because you've shared it with the entire risk department of 400 people and said, look, don't do this again. But actually by, by, by sharing that, you've waived the privilege um, you know, and then it would be difficult to rely on it.
0: So moving on to a slightly different topic, which is the need to balance a range of considerations in, in the course of an investigation. And of course, this isn't necessarily unique to multi-jurisdictional investigations, but it can perhaps, that kind of investigation can add another dimension to this. And so you've got, on the one hand, you're sort of legal risks uh, coming out of the conduct that is being investigated, Um, you know, sort of exposure to sanctions or fines or what have you. And then you've got exposure to reputational risk and that, uh, if not mitigated, can also be damaging to to the client's business uh, and the need to work cooperatively with uh, the regulator or with multiple regulators, as the case may be. And sometimes being cooperative with a regulator in one jurisdiction may jeopardise the ability to effectively defend an action in another jurisdiction. And sort of getting that balance right between cooperating as you think is, is warranted with a regulator, and, and but also sort of preserving your legal rights somewhere else. I wondered if you could um, provide some comments on How do you think a company can best balance uh, those competing or potentially competing considerations?
1: Rani, you absolutely right i mean this is a very difficult question you know you if you're facing multiple regulators your ideal position is that they all aligned and you're aligned vis-a-vis them we we don't live in an a, a, in an ideal world obviously so in many cases you may indeed have regulators moving at different speeds uh, having different agenda uh, and remember um in a way, the enforcement action is like a pie. You know, you know, there's a certain amount of money that the regulators can get from you, maybe they think, in their budgeting, and that that it will be competing with other regulators, yeah? So the ideal scenario is a joint settlement with all relevant regulators, so at least the, the major ones. And we've seen this more and more recently. I think in the last three, four years, you would have seen, particularly U.S., I would say being fairly generous in a sense, you know, combining their... Uh, actions with the UK, with Brazil, with some of the Asian countries—you know—it it has happened. What happens less is, and again, the regulators maybe in in you know if you have an action against uh, a company that in, on the FCPA and the misconduct took place in Russia or China, yeah, you know, you may settle with the U- U.S. regulator and potentially the UK or someone else where there is a jurisdiction. But I I think in particularly current environment may be difficult because geopolitical contexts may not align the Chinese or Russian regulators with the US or UK regulators. would be difficult to see that happening, and then the you know whether you have those domestic jurisdictions coming on the heels of those you know you know the U.S. or UK or others, that that, that is not um, it hasn't happened. The other point that hasn't happened is you know we're in Asia, and a lot of regulators here are still learning about the enforcement actions. They're still implementing the laws. They may not have had those major experiences in the past, and they may see the news coming out of you know, in Iran, Malaysia, or Indonesia that there is big. U U.S. action against companies doing misconduct on the ground here in Asia, they may use that, as you mentioned, as a follow-up, and then start their own action again. Ideal, it's not not ideal for the client, but something to to bear in mind. And what I would call is, I think you mentioned this as well, is it's a balancing act.
0: Yeah, that's um, that's a very helpful set of observations. Just on the on the experience with the U.S. regulator, I think it's probably informed at least in part by. Uh, The US Department of Justice's anti piling on policy that they issued in 2018, which is, you know, sort of a very good response to the phenomenon of multiple regulators investigating and prosecuting what's essentially the same conduct in multiple jurisdictions. So perhaps that's been the driving force behind what, what you mentioned in that regard. So let's shift tack a little bit and, and talk about some of the practical and logistical challenges that arise in multi-jurisdictional investigations. And I think it's fair to say that most lawyers, present company accepted, are qualified in and familiar with it, with single jurisdiction. And as much as we'd like to think that we uh, at least have some understanding of development in, in other locations, the, the reality is that local nuance won't be as visible to an outsider as it will be to a local. What what would you say are the value-adds for companies who might be considering whether or not to engage local council to assist with a multi-jurisdictional investigation?
1: Frankly, a lot can go wrong if the local council is not engaged, and I will mention um, from my experience just maybe three key areas where things can go wrong. First, the law and legal analysis. Secondly, culture, and thirdly, the language. Let me, let me untackle this very briefly for, for us. Well, very clear on the law point that you, you need to understand the local legal landscape. Particularly for Asia, what I've seen is that the legal landscape may not be as clear as we may have, you know, in countries where the regulations and, and, and enforcement actions have been, you know, coming for many years and there's quite a clear sort of rules and guidances, etc. So you may need to understand the law, but also the the regulatory approach, the trends, as well as the, you know, the industry standards. You know, I've had cases where uh, it wasn't just the law, where a client was exposed to some um, industry standards, you know, let's say in accounting world, uh, they had to be taken into account. It's not something that lead counsel sitting in another jurisdiction will appreciate it will know so to me it's like a no-brainer you need to have proper legal analysis from domestic jurisdiction because you you need to follow the rules as we discussed before the actual the the instigation process followed by local rules data privacy you know protections etc as well as the application of law and ultimately you may actually have the exposure to local regulator so that's a no brain i would say the second point is culture what i've seen as well as, is a mismatch uh you know again particularly in asia where you may have investigative teams coming from you know far abroad representing the um the client and and, and and the case i would mention would be where you have a headquarter company in the uk or us and their subsidiary there's some trouble in the subsidiary some investigation some whistleblowing report and you know the team is sent from the hq to investigate well it, it, there may be cultural nuances that you know if they're not taken into account they may actually derail the investigation in asia we take pride in how you know we diverse we are and how different we are and there's certain approach to you know to even to the interview process, it's you know that has to be taken into account to to support the investigation. Because remember, again, you need people to cooperate uh, with the investigation if you want to get the right results, and they may not be willing to do so if they don't feel the cultural connectivity. And that brings me to the last point that I wanted to mention: is language. I've seen one investigation where an attempt for by the English speaking lawyers who were running the investigation to understand the landscape of what's you know of the, all of the relevant documentation was to translate all of the documents from a foreign language into English and then you know reviewed by the English speakers well at the end of the day the translation cost was more than the legal cost that's not what we need to do obviously there's plenty of ways to avoid this and one of the ways is obviously engaging the local council who may well be it who definitely will be better placed to, to review documents at least at least in the first round to determine what's relevant what's not uh and be able to then you know maybe you only need, need to translate documents that actually you know like the, the gold mines you know the, the core core the hot hot relevancy so like i appreciate that there is natural tendency um as an american lawyer again to like take take ownership and run the project if you're dealing with multi-jurisdictional projects it, it may not be the best approach uh, for the client and for the actual regulator so i would definitely recommend ensuring uh, liaising and advising and and working with local council but particularly in places like asia
0: Thanks, Alexander. I think I can one-up you on the on the translation story, which is I, I once witnessed an attempt to deal with foreign language content using Google Translate, which was not, uh, not a good idea at all. Um, let's um, talk about sort of, how legal teams in multiple jurisdictions can collaborate effectively, and obviously that's, uh, particularly you do have team members uh, sort of based in different jurisdictions, it's obviously important to work together effectively. Have you encountered any particular ways of working or forms of collaboration that, that you thought uh, were particularly effective?
1: Yes, I think you know. As lawyers, we like the process, and I think we should like the process, and we should be clear about the process, right, Rani? I think um, you know the key critical point. If you have teams working, um, you know, from different law firms and different, again, cultures, you know, legal backgrounds, etc. cetera, uh, I, I would say there's three points that I would mention as critical for ensuring the efficiency uh, of the instigation uh, in a multi jurisdictional context. One, and I think very important, is at the very outset to create um, a document sharing protocol. That document sharing protocol uh, would, be, would take into account privilege data protection and other considerations and it is very important because it's it kind of lays out, lays out the rules of the game between between different um players because again they may be competing slightly competing uh um, you know in investigative in you know, the priorities in one of my examples where again we were helping the the headquarters to investigate one of the subsidiaries in Asia. Um, The local team really wanted to engage in certain counsel. uh, And that was allowed. But again, in that context, we had to make sure that the local council wasn't too tightly aligned with the local team because again the investigation had to be neutral etc so the, the the one of the ways to ensure this is the second point that i wanted to make is the regular uh, typically weekly team calls i prefer if i run an investigation and particularly the review process um book review process is to even have it uh, twice a week so you, you can have the kind of updates, what is hot, what's not hot, and everyone's on the same page, because that, that, that may, again, derail or you know, de- create a disconnect between the, the investigation being done on the ground and the reporting being done to the client. And that's the third point I wanted to mention, is it is important for from the local council perspective to be involved in the reporting to client they need to understand what's the kind of what are the concerns what is the big picture items because it's very easy for them to dig into documents kind of find out what they think might be relevant not relevant hot not hot but you know it may not be what the ultimately client wants or appreciates or maybe the focus of the client so in the, you know those three points the document sharing protocol regular team calls and updates and the, lastly the engagement and involvement of local council reporting reporting to the client would be very would be the three things i think would be late if you lay them out initially, and follow them carefully, they'll ensure the efficiency in investigation One thing that we've seen recently that there is now specialist legal project managers who can assist with in investigations I think we uh, at ashes to have those people as well. Those teams can help you run the projects because you know if you have multiple jurisdictions, or multiple time zones, you know a lot of people, a lot of documents, that's maybe still you know that may be a lot. Frankly. I think it's still important for lawyers to be um if you're running the investigation to be quite hands-on and to ensure that you understand where things are you know where things are heading, if there's any really hot documents coming up, because you may you may uncover something else. And it typically running as you know if there is one issue there may be other issues it means there's smoke there is more than one fire potentially so you need to act very quickly on those things and that's why i would recommend even though you may be using the legal specialist who manage the project to still have the lawyers involved in the, you know, in, in all the steps of the process, because you may need to adjust the search terms, you may need to have reporting to the client very quickly, you may need to decide on some uh, even self-reporting issues. You may need you may need to, to to talk to the regulator very early on. All of those things, you know, you, you do, do require, you know, the legal attention. So I would recommend that to be aligned and to lawyers to be, you know, actively involved in the process.
0: Oh, well, excellent points, Alexander, and there's so much to think about. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been terrific to hear your insights on some of the many complex issues that come with multi-jurisdictional investigations.
1: Rani, as you and I tell our clients, you know, we hope they won't need our cross-border investigative, investigative services. <laughs> but, um, you know, human nature prevails. You know, we, we see clients unfortunately where things can go wrong and uh, we we provide solutions and support clients so uh, you know look you guys know where to find us very happy to help and um, hope you enjoyed this thanks again for hosting me today
0: so we hope you've enjoyed today's chat. If you'd like to catch up on previous episodes of Investigations Unpacked, you can find these at ashes.com slash podcasts. We'd also really appreciate your feedback on our podcast. So please rate, leave us a rating or a review if you can. Thanks again for listening.